immediately what my mind went to was the fact that my father-in-law has recently died. And the reason it went to that place has a lot to do with the states that I was moving between to make this book. I'm a person who started believing that as part of my interracial marriage, I had been loved and accepted and understood by my family, um, the family I had married into. And what I came to understand after really um, 2012 and ramping up to 2016 was that in that place that I had sort of quietly written a story to myself about my in-laws having some idea of what it was like to be in my body and some idea of what I was up against every day. There is, in fact, the only thing that was there was my wish that they had understood that. And what I mean by that is my in-laws are um, um, an avid Trump supporter. This came out over the last election. It's partly what I wrote my book to explore. But when you talk about moving from one state to another, I was a person that very much thought I understood what my family was made of and what my family was about. And then all the illusions I had about that fell off. And in the place of anything that made sense, there was me with my Sharpie drawing and trying to understand what the hell was happening. My name is Jordan Kistner, and this is Thresholds, a series of conversations with writers about experiences that completely turned them upside down, disoriented them in their lives, changed them, and changed how and why they wanted to write. So my name is Mira Jacob, and I'm the author of Good Talk, which is a memoir that I drew, and it is a series of drawn conversations that have informed me over my life. And I am also the author of The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing, which is a novel. Thresholds, the podcast, but also just the concept, is something I've been thinking about for a long time. I just finished writing an essay collection called Thin Places, and when I was working on it, I thought of it as a collection of thresholds, interior or exterior places where human beings, specifically American human beings living now, found themselves between identities, jobs, loves, religions, genders, ways of being. And my interest in this topic was uh, fairly selfish. I am an American human being living now. And at the time that I wrote this book, I was in the middle of a series of upheavals that were alarming and um, and mystifying to me. A bunch of things that I had thought were true about myself and my life turned out to be maybe not so true. And there's this novel by the author Sheila Hetty called How Should a Person Be that was very relatable to me at the time. I picked it up because I saw the cover and thought, oh, perfect, this is exactly my question. Here's a little bit of her introduction. How should a person be? For years and years, I asked it of everyone I met. I was always watching to see what they were going to do in any situation so I could do it too. 
I was always listening to their answers, so if I liked them, I could make them my answers too. I noticed the way people dressed, the way they treated their lovers. In everyone, there was something to envy. You can admire anyone for being themselves. It's hard not to when everyone's so good at it. But when you think of them all together like that, how can you choose? Okay, I loved this, and I still love it. But its tone is a little bit kickier uh, and funnier than I was feeling at the time. My question wasn't exactly how to behave in any given situation, but what to do about the big situation, like the, the life situation, the condition of being a human being who doesn't really know what to believe in. And, and since she doesn't really know what to believe in, isn't quite sure anymore how to be. You could reasonably call this the drama of being 25 or the drama of disillusionment about love, religion, identity, work, the economy, America, yourself, your family, whatever. But I was deep in it. And so like Hetty, I started watching how other people managed big existential reversals and I wrote about it. I wrote about a religion on the edge of extinction in Maine and a group of Mormon women breaking away from decades of church tradition about how women are supposed to be, Mexican-American young women, teenagers participating in this Martha Washington-themed debutante ball on the border of Texas and Mexico, near where my family is from, people riding the subway in New York, and so on and so on. And as I met all these people, I noticed that feeling like you're in free fall within your own life or feeling confused about how to be a person is actually one of the most interesting and weird and common states of human existence. Everyone is trying to figure out how to be a person. Everyone is sort of confused about how everybody else is managing it. And everyone manages it in their own way, I guess, but I managed it by writing my way out of it. And now that that's sort of done, I've been itching to talk to other writers who've done that too. I want to know how and why they took their moments of personal revolution and confusion and transformation and turned it into art. My first guest is Mira Jacob talking about a devastating and bewildering realization she had about her own family that provoked her recent very beautiful book, Good Talk. It felt the way, the falling off felt the way that it does. I think this is a really common experience for people of color, to be honest. When it felt the way when you suddenly look at a friend and realize, oh, not only are we not on the same side of this, there have been so many signs that you were not on this side with me. And and I did not want to know that yet. There were other things that we were doing in that time. But in this place where I needed bedrock, there's nothing but like cracks and fissures. So what I mean is it wasn't it wasn't like, oh my God, this is so surprising. It wasn't. It was a culmination of a million different missteps we had had over the course of our relationship. I think I'm saying that wrong. It was the culmination of something they had thought all along coming to light. And in the moment when it came 
to light, I realized all the things I had been looking away from not to see it. My husband, um, I was supposed to pick him up on a train. We were, we were heading to the Cape with friends and I went to pick him up. And I just remember this because my son fell asleep in the back of the car. And when he fell asleep, my husband said, listen, I got to tell you on the train, I had a really bad conversation with my folks. And they said, what happened? And he said, you know, I just, you know, they keep saying that, you know, they're leaning toward Trump, they're leaning toward Trump, and I just lost it. And I said, what are you thinking? We're Jewish. What are you thinking? My wife is brown. What do you think this man is doing? This is crazy. And and he's like, and then, and he's like, I guess, I guess really what happened is that was in an email. His mother and he had had an email exchange about it. And then his father had read the email, and then his mother called and said, your father's so angry. He doesn't... Um, he doesn't know how to talk to you anymore, and he's really furious. And it was kind of put to him like, you need to make this right. We're in the car driving, the kids asleep in the back. My husband's parents have, like many of our parents, been um, ill with various things. We're aware of their mortality in a way that I think you can kind of be unaware sometimes, but we're not anymore. My own father died um, from cancer about 12 years ago. And I knew all of that put together, and I, I was sort of formulating in my head, what's important here? What's important here? What's the important part? And at that point, it was 2015, and I think what I said to him was, maybe you just don't talk to him about it anymore. These are your parents. They're not going to change their minds. I said it, and I said it because I kind of wanted to take care of the thing in him. But then that night, the thing in me that was broken just suddenly was like, what? What? And I remember I turned to him and I was like, listen, I just got to ask you, they don't, uh, they don't love our son less than they love their white grandkids, do they? And he was quiet. And in that quiet, like, I just started sobbing. And it was this really hard moment because, and he immediately was like, no, that's not, wait, you're not, uh. and he's like, that's not what, I don't know how to say this to you. And I was like, say the thing to me, just say it. And he said, it's not that they love him less. It's that they don't think that he's brown. And I was like, well, <laughs> oh God, <gasps> what do I do? You know, um. He's, what do you do? Like, what do you do? What did you do? I mean, I wrote a book. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like There are so many girls walking around in me in any given time trying to get through the day and show up for hard conversations and love the very lovable person that she's with and the son that she has had. Like there's so much of me that is about showing up and what do you do in a moment where you don't even know how to show up for yourself? I don't know. Like what I do is I just recede and I take a pencil with me (laughs) so I can draw my way back out.
so I can find my way back out, so I can write my way back out. I don't know how else to do that. One of the, when you talk about a thinness, I remember having the feeling of like, oh no, if I leave behind this illusion, if I leave behind this illusion that we're okay and that we're intact and that love will conquer all or whatever the hell I've been telling myself, what's left? And that was a really scary place to be. In that moment, it sounds like you had a choice about whether or not you were going to kind of move through into a new world with your family where you were acknowledging to yourself and maybe to your husband and maybe to your in-laws that like you weren't okay. This wasn't okay. It was not intact. But or you- without them. That was the choice too. That's the thing. It didn't feel to me like a given that the familial relationships would work out after I acknowledged that. Did it feel like a choice you were going to get to make or did it feel written for you in some way? It felt like a choice that they were going to get to make once they understood what I was really feeling about all of it. Did you feel like you had agency over whether or not you were going to show how you felt about it? I think I felt like I was going to choose between two me's and one was the one who was now faced with this knowledge was going to actively decide to shut her eyes on all of it and go into that kind of deep slumber that frankly isn't that deep and happens all the time in the rest of my life. You know, like people say bullshit to me all day long and I'm like, not going to interrupt with that one. Not going to do this. Not going to yell about that one. Just not going to do it. Like, It's just that times your family. So that was one choice. Or the other was, I'm going to look at this and I'm going to be myself in this moment. And myself is curious. And myself is angry. And myself is going to fight this out. So, But I also felt like I could choose my role for sure. But I wasn't sure that I would have a family at the other side of it. Or what that family would look like. I knew I'd have my son, you know, like that's, that's my boy. Like we'll figure it out. I was scared about what it would mean for me and my husband, but I had a feeling that we would survive it. Um, and, but mostly I was like, white family is not going to like this. The white side of the family is going to feel really hurt. These are these people that you've loved. You've been in their houses for now 20 years. You've been They think they've done a really wonderful job of accepting you. Now you're going to upend all that. You're going to tell them that they were hurting, that that they weren't doing the job they thought they were doing. Yeah, that none of us were doing the job. I thought, I mean, I had to call myself out too. You know, it's like, what wishful thinking did you substitute in the place for real talking, right? What fantasy did you project onto this situation? Because you just needed to believe you were safe. It's so hard. That's so scary. It's so scary to like walk forward into acknowledging that you have not been safe in all the time that you thought you were safe. Yeah. That was, I mean, honestly, I did not like go into the world very much for three years. I sat alone in a room, a pretty cold room actually, 
and taught myself how to draw and wrote a lot. But I shut down on a lot of levels too. I feel like that's so, that's such a theme in conversations I have like this where people are talking about this kind of liminal experience as they wind up like having to really come in. Cocoon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you do in there when you went to the desk and you were like, I got to go away with a pencil? Where do you start? What does that feel like? So I didn't really know how to draw very well. Like I can draw, I've always been able to draw, but not well enough to make a book. So part of it was just learn how to draw. And it was really helpful to have that. It was really helpful to say, here's a discrete task that you have to figure out. And it's going to be a step on this bridge forward. And then it was like, I'll learn how to draw noses. And you just draw like 20,000 noses over the course of three weeks and until the nose vaguely remember, you know, like resembles a nose and that's a thing. And you're like, what What do noses have to do with being able to talk to my in-laws? Oh, right, right. You know, it's just a bizarre set of sort of circumstances I set up for myself. But all of it was. I had to design my own font. I had to, you know, figure out this visual language. Like I kept having dreams about how does a visual language work? I'm, I'm a visual person. I live in this world. I put things together. But like, how does mine work? What does that look like? And so I would ask myself these weird philosophical questions about, do you think, I mean, the way this book operates, right, is that it's, um, you look at it and it's almost like you're looking at paper dolls. So it's these sort of paper cutouts on top of pictures and you're looking at them. They never change expression and they never, um, really change even angles. And so it was like very limited. I was like, okay, so you never, you never change that. And when I decided not to change the expressions, I knew exactly why I was doing that. Cause I was like, I am not going to play to the person who needs me to cry for sympathy. I'm going to keep these faces blank in a very specific way. But then even more than that, I was like, how do these bodies work in the space? What are you saying about how these bodies live in space? And are you saying that if you're brown, if you're, you know, brown and born into this body, then your life is only ever experienced this way? You know, that's not true. You have cousins who are Trump supporters. Like your experience is specific. So then what do you do? Oh, you take that body. And so like in the book, there are several kind of ancillary characters that share the same body. They're not the same character. It just, it's, it's the same person that shows up, right? It's the same body rather that shows up with a completely different life attached to it. It was that kind of thing where it was like, think through how you're going to say something visually because you have to invent this language. I think because I just, because I am a writer and this idea that I'd somehow slipped through a chasm in which my own family didn't know me felt to me like the thing that I'd relied upon most words had already failed. I didn't have that faith in that anymore. So I had to find a different way. It sounds like so much of the problem that you're describing or the like pain has to do with bodies and how bodies present differently. And what does it mean to be living in a brown body versus a white body versus a black body? And how do we put those bodies in the same space and in conversation with each other in a way that isn't suffering that isn't painful and harmful and i'm just struck listening to you that you're you're saying you kind of went away and cocooned and what you did was learn how to make bodies and put them in space together oh yeah yeah absolutely and the relief in that was real too 
there's this weird thing that I do sometimes when I'm feeling um, really anxious about America, which is like everything, every day, um, which I sometimes will open up. The end papers are all the people that I drew. And it's just this huge mash of America. But it's also an America that feels to me like we are actively being dissuaded from the idea that that America can even exist anymore. The book doesn't end like happy. No. It doesn't end. Res- <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't end resolved, you know? know, which is good. Like I love that about it is that it doesn't. It's put all these things in one space, and then said, "This is really fucking hard. This yeah. is really messy." I'm going to, like, one of the last lines of, like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do this yeah. for us. But we don't have any guarantees about what, where we're going or where, you know, how it's going to go when we get there. Don't know how this is going to work out. Yeah, you know, what's really funny is that, um, so I, I've been touring a lot since the book came out. And by far, the biggest question that comes at me is, like, so how did it turn out now? And and people always say it with this, like, really sweet nod <laughs> and this, like, shining in their eyes of, like, so it's great now, right? Like, they read it. Everybody loves each other. And I'm like, that's no. Yeah. Like, that's not what happened. Yeah. And also, you can't read the tea leaves of America through my family. I'm telling you what our family looks like. Go work on your own. You know? Like, yeah. if you're nervous about it, go look at your own. I can't fix that for you. Yeah. Nor is it any one writer's job or artist's job to do that you know you should be behind me at these q a's just saying that gently (laughs) not your job not your job i'm sorry that's not her job it's not her job i'm sorry nope that one's not her job either (laughs) yeah it's funny that that people who kind of try to wade into these difficult conversations in their work are often then like looked to by the people who read it saying like this is my problem too have you figured it out yes totally. <laughs> can you let me know i mean the amount of times that people have contacted me for parenting advice and they're like so let's talk parenting advice i'm like if you read that book and the thing that you thought next was i should definitely ask this woman for parenting advice you are not a careful reader like i have mishandled so many 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 things and it will continue to and the, you know what I mean? It's just, it's very funny because I'm like, you guys, I have all the same questions. I just happen to write them down. Yeah. But I think that there are so few books that articulate that, those questions. Yeah. That yeah. people think, my God, there's, there are the, there are the questions. Those are my questions. Yes, totally. Let me go find the person who asked them. <laughs> she um, must have gotten an answer by now. She must have figured it she out. She must have figured out racism by now. Like, yeah. that's definitely, you know what? She probably cracked it. <laughs> so, like, keeping with our theme of, like, nothing gets resolved, you just sort of are going to put all the concepts in the space and let them be and see what happens and do the thing you can do. After, it sounds like after you had that really, really painful moment of realization and of some kind of decision that you were going to be yourself and yourself was curious. And you went and you learned to draw noses and made this book. What did coming out the others, did you come out some other side? Because the, the not notion of a threshold implies yeah. that you're passing from one space into another space. And have you reached another space yet? 
Yes. And you know, it's funny that you bring this up because I just had this super intense talk last night with um, a woman who's coming out with a memoir. We talked about guilt, guilt and right. Like, what do you do with guilt around your truth and putting your truth out into the world? And one of the other questions that's sort of asked of me in, in kind of sideways ways is, don't you feel guilty about having done this? you know, to your family. It's almost always asked of white, you know, like by white people in the audience. Like, don't you feel guilty for having done this? And the, and the weird part of that is, but they, they don't articulate it by the way. They don't say, don't you feel guilty? They say, um, do you have maybe regrets about exposing your family this way? Again, nodding at me, like, tell us about how you regret this. And I don't, I don't. Which is, I think, to me, coming out the other side, it's not, I don't, I'm not a monster. It's not because I don't love these people. And it's not because I don't care about them. I really care about them. It's because I think their job is to take this on. Like, I did my job for us. I did the best thing I could have, which is to show up fully for this conversation with, like, every bit of my heart and intensity. I showed up. If you can't show up back or if you want to get mad at me about some little part of it that you thought was unfair, if you want to like, if you want to get up in your brittle feelings and hold on to what hurts, hold on to it. You're going to, that's what you're going to do. But I don't feel guilty about you holding on to it. You've decided to hold on to that. How did you come to that? I, were there moments yeah. ever where you were wrestling with guilt and then you had oh, this? Oh, for sure. So yeah. when did that I mean, it was really just, it was um, a series of kind of giving myself like the, just really talking myself through it. Okay, so if you don't say the truth, if you don't, if you don't say the truth, who does that help? Who does that hurt? And really, for most of it, it was like, does it hurt or help your son, who's a young brown boy, whose grandparents don't see him as brown? but who's quickly evolving into the exact kind of boy looks wise that is threatening to white Americans because of something he can't control about their imaginations. So like who, with each step of this, how does this affect him? Right. How does this affect that conversation? And so it's like, if you, if you don't talk about it, does it help him? Does it hurt him? Yeah, that hurts him. Does it help? them or does it hurt them? I guess there's part of you that could say, well, it helps them because they're not then exposed to this level of scrutiny that they didn't ask for, which is real. Does it help them, though, that they don't know the grandson that they adore? Does it help them when later on in his life, they tell him something like, we don't see you as brown, and it poisons the way that he thinks about them forever? Does that help them? It does not help them. They love this kid. It does not help. There's that part of it. Then there was the other part of it, which was I would ask myself constantly, are you writing for clarity or vindication? Because that's a huge, there's a huge difference in those things. And I wrote for both while I was writing this because I'm 
fucking angry. Like I'm a human and I'm angry (laughs) and it's painful. So I would write all the things I needed to write, but then I would look at them afterwards and I said, "Would this was this for clarity or vindication?" And I would just cut huge swaths of things that were just low-hanging, easy fruit that would easily whip up a Twitter mob into something incomprehensible. Because also, my son is half white, right? Does it help or does it hurt to have people railing against his grandparents? Does it help or does it hurt? to have them turned into these very simple monsters that a mob can easily tear apart because it makes them feel good for a day before they move on to the next thing. And so I would erase, not erase, but actually I just like cut them out. I cut them out, the parts that I thought were written only for vindication, and then I kept going with the parts that were written for clarity. And if there were places missing, then I had to go back and say, okay, so this one right now, you wrote this one for vindication, And But there's something here that's real. If you weren't writing it for vindication, what would the truth of this moment look like? Go back in. Where is there humanity in this? What does that look like? What do you imagine their humanity to look like in this moment? And I know there's a huge school of thought that's like, why would you bother imagining their humanity when they can't imagine yours? And I don't have a great answer to that other than for my son. That's why I would do it. You were saying at the beginning of our conversation that one of the things that had you thinking about this is that your father-in-law recently passed away. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that changed anything about your relationship to these questions or even your relationship to the work that you made while you were working your way through it. Okay. So the reason I thought about that is because I thought When I was doing this book, I kept being very aware because I lost my dad from cancer and because I know how when you lose a parent, all of those problems that you had, all of those things, all the things that never got sorted or fixed with them, they don't go away. They just keep living in you. Um, And when I was first thing about this book I was like the worst comes to worst what happens one of them dies and then what do you feel do you feel horrible for this do you feel horrible for this do you feel horrible for having said your truth in a moment where someone else's life was at stake and um and because the worst possible thing happened in a way we lost this man who was complicated but also who I loved and who really formed my husband in many good ways, like helped him be the kind of guy that just shows up and is very steady. We lost that man too. And I think when I was starting it, I was like, there's no way that I'm going to be able to write a book where I'm going to, if it's honest, where I'm going to feel okay. If, if this person gets sick, if, you know, this person dies, I'm going to feel guilty because I will have made some part of this man's life about this. But I don't feel guilty. I feel like I showed up to love him in the best way I could. Like, just trying to stay in a conversation with him. And so I'm really sad now 
that he's gone because I'm really sad that that conversation will never evolve. And it really did get cut short. We didn't get out of it cleanly. There was no, like, sweet resolution in the end. But I feel like I showed up for you, man. Like, I showed up with everything I had. I showed up for you. It doesn't look like what it will look like when other people show up for you, but this is what love looks like from me. You have to let go of the idea that um, anyone else is going to see it the way you do, right? Like, I'm having this conversation with you, and I'm imagining that my white family would hear this and think, oh, she's so egotistical, or she's so cruel, or, you know, whatever it is. And I actually might be, frankly, egotistical and cruel. I think those are things are all in the mix of me, but this was not something I built out of egotism and cruelty. I have a question in general about who you think you would be without this oh, man. thing in your life, this <laughs> threshold, this moment. Uh, so funny, because I will tell you that before, like, before I set out on this, I remember talking to my best friend, um, Allison, in the street in Brooklyn, and just, like, screaming, like, I don't want this anymore. I don't want this body. I don't want the the way that it's treated. I don't want the fear. I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. <laughs> like, I was just, like, I like, I was looking at her as though she might be able to take it away. You know what I mean? Like with that like crazy, irrational like kid, like, can you please? I can't imagine not having this body, especially this moment to kind of head out into this sort of wild, it's like real wilderness, I guess is the way to describe it, place alone, trying to reckon with what it means, both for me and for my kid. Sometimes I think, wouldn't it be great, wouldn't it be great, wouldn't it be great to be in a body that feels safe, to be in a place that feels protected. But I think I do have a fair amount of those protections. I'm Indian, you know. There there are a fair amount of those things that I live with and I don't think in as far as in as far as you have to do the work like everybody in their body has to do the work to figure out what it is nobody gets off the hook here some of us are safer than others some of us can move through the world more easily than others but the work of keeping each other safe no one gets off the hook and if you let yourself off the hook you're kind of an asshole you're Completely an asshole. You're completely You're an asshole. One hundred percent asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Thresholds is a production of LitHub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber, and special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Giroux. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jordan.Kissner. See you next week.